Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy Alex Prude. I think this is the f- oh no, this isn't the first time I've had you on this year. I think I had you on a couple weeks into the season. I remember we did like some early season superlatives. So the second you're, time you're, you're literally the only person I use Skype with. So I think it was like October. Yeah, because that was the last Skype Skype call I made before I logged in for this. Oh, I use Skype Skype for pretty much all of my episodes, so I'm a I'm a frequent Skype user. If Skype wants <laughs> so do to, I. If Skype, if Skype wants to uh, become a sponsor of the Hockey Pedio Cast, I feel like that'd be some good brand synergy. Ooh, that'd be a good one. Mm. So, Alex, um, I decided to have you on because obviously, um, well, I wanted to have you on a couple of weeks ago when you let out put out your uh, Evgeny Kuznetsov feature, and we're going to get into that. Um, we're going to talk about this Tampa Bay Lightning feature that you have coming out on Wednesday. Um, we're recording this on a Tuesday afternoon, and you've uh, been kind enough to send me a, a sneak peek of it, so I've gotten um, a chance to read it before others have, and uh, it's one of, the, one, of the, one of the many perks of doing this podcast is, uh, is getting sneak previews like that. And so, I don't know why um, you want to suffer yourself that early. But. Oh, I loved it. I, I really enjoyed it. I think it was really well done, and I'm looking forward to diving into it with you. But before we get into that, there, since I've last recorded, there have been some... Uh, some transactions in the NHL, a couple of trades, a, a big signing. And I figured um, we'd get into that a little bit before we kind of took a bigger picture view of some of the stories you've written in the past. You're not contractually obligated to lead off with Toronto anymore, are you, though? No, I'm not. Um, I can do whatever I want. I make the rules. But... <laughs> but... Conveniently Toronto. enough, yes. They, uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's one of the jokes is like uh, one of the Twitter jokes is uh, how does this affect the Leafs when it's like some random thing that happens to like the Columbus Blue Jackets. But in this case, uh, the Austin Matthews world, extension really, and the Jake Muzzin trade. Yeah, exactly. How does it affect the Leafs? Um, okay, let's take this stuff in chronological order. I feel like the Jake Muzzin trade happened so long ago now, but I haven't really done a show since then, so I haven't really talked about it in this platform. But um, let's get into that a little bit because obviously whenever you have a trade like that where it's like 
two teams that are very clearly going in opposite directions and you have a current contributor going one way and then a package of prospects and picks going the other way um you know i guess it's all relative in terms of expectations and sort of what the two teams are looking for but this struck me as one of those trades that made a ton of sense for both teams or both considering the directions they are headed in as a franchise like improved based on what they're looking for from the trade yeah uh i don't have a heck of a lot to say about this trade um la got what it probably what was a good package i imagine for a guy like jake muzzin um kind of signaled the start of uh, the full fire sale uh i guess tanner pearson was kind of the first shot but um this one really digs into the core a little bit more and then um yeah for the least i mean you get cost control for the next this the rest of this year and then into next year um which obviously is going to help when you're doing the matthews trade which i know we're going to get to and then marner whenever that comes um and then you got to feel like at, at the end of that um he's going to be in his early 30s you probably got to like your chances if you if you enjoy what he's done there mm-hmm. um he's a local kid and you probably can probably have the upper leg on re-signing him there too so um he's looked good so far i mean heck of an ovation he got was the last night when he scores and yep um granted it was against a team that lets everyone score these days but um yeah it seems it seems like they've they've really taken him there and um obviously they bolster up the the blue line um i'm curious i want to hear what you think um what this means for Boston and Tampa. Right. And I guess to a certain degree, Buffalo, they're, they're kind of in a different boat when it comes to asset management. I managed at this point and um, adding. Well, obviously this is kind of like the first leg of this like arms race. I imagine we're going to see where um, regardless of what the standings look like now, it seems pretty clear that we're headed again towards a Boston Toronto first round matchup. And then the winner of that is going to have Tampa Bay lying in the wings waiting for them. And I imagine, you know, I'm sure the Leafs are going to look to improve their team between now and the trade deadline further, although they're going to kind of have to get creative to do so because they don't have too much flexibility. But we're going to see Boston and Tampa Bay, I'm sure, as well, um, bring in guys to to improve their teams. I'm not sure we're going to see the Lightning make as big scale of a trade as they did with Ryan McDonough last year. But it's going to be fascinating to kind of see them jockeying for position and sort of not taking the regular season for granted because obviously you don't want to diminish what a team like Montreal has done inserting themselves into this race and and so on and so forth and the east is pretty tight but it does feel like even though we're in early february we kind of can see what the future holds in this atlantic division and so it's gonna be fascinating to see how uh these teams balance the present day versus what's to come in late april and early may yes for, forgive me montreal for leaving you out um <laughs> uh i mean yeah they're right there they're one they're point ahead of boston i think with the upper game not that it really matters yeah. at this point but um yeah I, they could add um I, I there's a lot out there to me it feels like there this is certainly more um i guess fertile trade deadline lead up than it was in past years um where i mean you look at all, all the ottawa guys who are currently unsigned right now whether they're going to hit the market um I'm sure we'll get to this, but what is Florida going to do with the two centers they just acquired from Pittsburgh who are expiring? And mm-hmm. um, what direction is Columbus going to go with the guys who say that they don't really want to be there anymore? Um, well, it's kind there's of, a lot. It's interesting a lot to inquire about if you're one of those teams. And um, Boston and Tampa certainly have the the pieces and um, I guess the the gusto and management to go for it. Well, you're speaking of the of the fertile tra- trade ground in the market, like it's it. I can see it from both perspectives, right? Because on the one hand, um, in terms of the question of why teams do wait until the trade deadline to finally make a move, like if you were going to look to improve your team and you have an obvious need, it would make more sense to jump at it now. You get the guy for an extra couple of weeks, you let him immerse with the team and get more comfortable, and, and that would presumably be an advantage to you. But at the same time, 
like the playoff picture is so murky right now because of the loser point and how uh, standing points are divvied out. Like it's, it feels like there's way more, um, not necessarily buyers and sellers, but more, way more teams that are kind of stuck in the middle right now, not sure where they want to go. So I imagine for a lot of these teams, they are going to be waiting to see how the next couple of weeks play out to figure out how they want to approach the trade deadline. And I guess the counterpoint to make to that is if you're still unsure at this point, you're probably not a contender, so you may as well be a seller. But um yeah, it's, it's always kind of fascinating to see how uh, teams approach this game of chicken where they're waiting for a market to materialize and waiting to see if the price is either going to uh, drop as teams get desperate or whether teams are going to become so desperate that approaching February 25th, they're going to suddenly overpay just because they feel like it's their last shot to improve their team. It, it's very hockey, isn't it? Just to be as conservative and wait, 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 wait. And, and uh, I mean, especially here in the States, juxtaposed with what goes on with the NBA, like... Kristaps Porzingis is disgruntled one day and then he's out within an hour. He's out by lunch. Right. Um, but to, to your point about jump on it early, I mean, that's the Jim Rutherford model, right? That's, that's what he's done the past couple of years. And it seems to be what he prefers to do and bringing on these guys with a couple weeks to spare and integrating them into the lineup and for the stretch run. And, um, maybe that's a good segue to the other one. Well, I do want to touch on a little more of this Muzzin trade. I, I think from the Kings perspective, like there's not really too much to say. They're clearly sellers and, and this is one of the first dominoes to fall and they don't have too many other sort of expendable pieces from the perspective of being appealing to teams because most of their guys are kind of aging veteran players with big price tags and long-term extensions. And yeah, I was going through it. Like who would you want? Um, maybe Jeff Carter with a couple years left. If you bank on him being healthy, or like maybe Alec Martinez. Well, uh, some team, some team may hag- may take Haglin. Yeah. Well, yeah, he's an expiring. I think he makes he's sense. Although ultimately, yeah. like that's going to be what like a third or fourth round pick that comes back. Like it's not going to move the needle either way. I think Martinez is certainly an interesting one. Um, you know, he's got a reasonable cap hit and he's still on the books uh, moving forward. And so we know how much teams crave defensemen, and I'm sure that he could help someone. Carter is like. I mean, he's clearly fallen off a little bit, and I believe he left uh, last night's game against the Rangers with a with a lower leg injury. I'm not sure how serious it is. Oh, but did he? I love oh, that. Boy. I love that story of like a uh, report came out a few weeks ago where it's like teams that are potentially going to be in the market for Jeff Carter are going to want to do their due diligence on whether he'll want to play for them, and it, it's kind of funny. I guess obviously he has a, a no mover. No Does that mean talk to the doctors? I don't know what it means. I I I, I, I I'm, I'm still amazed that Jeff Carter is uh, is still. I guess relatively productive and, and playing at this point, it felt it felt like he was going to be one of those guys that was not going to age very gracefully, and and he's done a lot better than I thought he would. But it's clear that he's no longer the type of uh, impact player that he was in the past. But you know, like I, I never really talk about the Kings much on this podcast, just because this year there there's been such an underwhelming disappointment. I, I had their um uh, their play by play guy Alex Faust, who does their oh, yeah. uh, the Fox Sports um, calls he's for them. Awesome. Um, when the Kings were in town here in Vancouver, I think it was like a handful of weeks ago now, uh, I met up with him and, and we recorded a podcast, but we were doing it in this like really loud hotel lobby and the audio was so bad that it was the first time I've ever recorded a show and decided not to, uh, not to publish it oh, just because it was bummer. so bad. You really deprived your listeners. Seriously. Yeah, that no, was he was, awesome. he was, he was great. Um, yeah. he was great. And, and so I think the listeners are going to have to take my word for it that it was, uh, Arguably one of the best PDO casts I've ever done. When, when this show is over, they're going to have like the PDO cast hidden track, like the deep track cuts that you know people are going to say like, "Oh yeah, I've heard the Alex Faust tape before." <laughs> you're going to have to download it. You're going to have to illegally stream it. Um, yeah, I'm going to get it through LimeWire. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Kazam. Yeah. Um, but from the Leafs' perspective, 
Um, and you mentioned sort of how this impacts the race and, and what Boston and Tampa Bay are going to do. I think like, I, it's always interesting with analysis online because it feels like sometimes people are really slow to adapt and people, I felt like we're still talking about Jake Muzzin the way we all perceived him, or I guess the, the analytics community perceived him a couple of years ago where he was like the most underrated player in the league and everyone loved him and everyone was like raising about the question of whether he was actually the King's best defenseman and he was sneakily better than Drew Doughty. And I think he's fallen off or, or a bit or his play has taken a bit of a step back, but just the fact that he gets to go now and plays in this fun up-tempo system with lots of scoring and a bunch of young players. It's such a complete polar opposite to the situation he was in with LA. And I imagine um, regardless of what he has left in the tank, they're going to squeeze the most out of it, just throwing him, vaulting him back into this playoff race. And I think the big winner of this trade was actually Morgan Riley. Cause if you look at the, uh, the list of people he's played with most commonly as his defense partners throughout his career, it's been so bleak. And now you get, Jake Muzzin in there to play with him. It bumps Ron Hainsey down the lineup. And then potentially even next year, you mentioned that Muzzin has that extra year left on his deal at, I believe, $4 million, which is a great price for him. Um, you know, Jake Gardner is probably going to leave this free, this free agency just because he's going to be too expensive for the Leafs to retain. So that kind of gives him a fallback option there as well. So I really obviously like that move from the Leafs perspective. I'm just not sure um, how much Jake Muzzin himself moves the needle in terms of improving Toronto to the point where you're going to pick them in a series against either Boston or Tampa Bay. Like I, I like the move from them. I think it was a smart one and especially to get ahead of it and do it now. But ultimately I'm not sure how big of a difference it makes in the grand scheme of things. I was going to say the big winner of all this is Jake Gardner. Cause now the heat's off and if he wants, he can pretend that everyone's still cheering for him. Yeah. They're, they're all just chanting Jake. <laughs> they are. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good point. Um, well, he's going to be the big winner this summer when he gets paid in free agency, regardless of how the season ends for him. Ooh, that's a good point. A lot of people are, though. It's yeah. a good class. That's true. Um, okay, let's do the uh, the Panthers-Penguins trade we alluded to. Um, so for those that somehow missed it, it was uh, Nick Bukestad and Jared McCann going to Pittsburgh. And Florida got Derek Broussard, Riley Shan, both of whom are expiring this summer, and three draft picks. I think it was like a second and two fourths. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so obviously, it, here's the thing. I know that people like to typically say this, and I think it's over um, valued as analysis when people go, we're going to have to wait a couple of years to see how this trade is going to play out before we determine winners and losers. Cause I think that's a flawed way to look at it. Like ultimately you should be analyzing trades based on the information we have at the time the trades were made at the same time for the Panthers. Like it's so obviously telegraphed that this move was um, done in largely to create more salary cap space for the summer when they're presumably going to go after Artemi Panarin or Sergei Bobrovsky or both or, or some other free agent. And so in this case, I am willing to give people a pass when they say we're going to have to wait to see how this plays out because obviously if they land one of those guys with this extra cap space they created, um, then that'll be an entirely different discussion than in kind of what they got back for those guys at this point. Yeah, those are the big fish. Um, and look, I think they have a reasonable shot at getting one or both of them. I don't know about you, um, but one, culturally, even there's a, this big old Russian community down there. I think it's on Fisher Island and um, in Miami where a bunch of them live or spend the time during the offseason. Um, Dadunov had a place there for a while, even before he went uh, and went and signed there. Um, so I don't know, maybe Dadunov's becoming the Pied Piper and bringing his buddies down. But um, yeah, that's what it's that's what it's all about. Um, I think the draft picks were important to florida um they're they're covered and, and the miners are kind of barren right now at least with homegrown talent they have a bunch of 
um, I think like free agents and such, but there's that. And then flexibility, obviously for July one. And, um, I don't know, interesting, like, I mean, look at a Bustad contract, right? It's one of those escalators that they get. I think it was the first one that they gave out in that long string of long-term deals that Trocek got, Barkov, Ekblad, Huberdeau. Um, but Bustad, if I recall, was the first domino to fall. Um, and for a small market team, the increase in salary, I think it climbs up into the fives over the next couple of years, um, is is a decent chunk of change for a guy that they really couldn't figure out what to do with, um, or they couldn't really find a home with. I mean, he was, he was riding shotgun with Barkov for a while and Dadanov. Um, he's been the second center. He's been the third center. He's been the third wing. He's been all over the map. Um, and I think that Pittsburgh is going to get a, a pretty good use out of him. Um, it's kind of funny that they package Broussard and Sheehan, um, the two guys they tried to solve that 3C position with over the past year or so um, in order to get the guy. But And McCann's a, a pretty useful bottom six piece with upside on a good contract. Um, so, you know, I, I, I like it from Pittsburgh's perspective if they if they feel internally that, um, you know, Bustad's going to be a marginal upgrade over Broussard, which clearly that wasn't working out. And um, for Florida, yeah, I mean, you're going to see what the market's going to bear out for Broussard and Sheehan on um, – for the trend day, trend day later this month. But, um, I think it was also a little bit of, um, kind of a heads up to some of the other guys who are on those long-term deals. Like don't get too comfortable if things don't turn around real quick. Um, I think the owner's kind of itching to get going and, um, they're going to have anywhere between like, by my math, like 25 and upwards of 50 million dollars in cap space on July one, depending on how they play this all, which is like, I mean, that's, that's enough to go get yourself a couple you know, 10 plus million guys if you want, um, and still have left over to round out the edges. So, yeah. um, look for them to be big players and, you know, getting, getting this money abuse dad money is not a ton to get off, but, um, it's enough to, um, it's, it's enough, it's enough to add up and, and certainly would certainly point to an eventful July one for them. Well, yeah, they, I think they, what they shed like around 5 million or something in future cap space. And, um, yeah, it'll, I, I it remains to be seen what they're going to use it on. Like I, I'm very skeptical about the Bobrovsky stuff just because there was that report by Larry Brooks the other day that they're looking to potentially trade for Bobrovsky right now and then sign him to an eight-year extension. And obviously the idea of giving a a 31-year-old goalie, I believe he turns 31 in September, um, an eight-year deal is very alarming, especially considering... Yeah, with uh, groin issues. Yeah, and the fact that he has not looked very good this year and... That's obviously alarming, and I guess like immediately becomes a prime candidate to be one of the first uh, obvious compliance buyouts if that comes up again in the new CBA. And it's it's like it just seems like a, a weird way to be approaching using this new cap space that you have. But I think well, like, also with, also with two goalies currently under contract for I think Reimer's at like three and a half, and Longos I've said four and a half for a couple more years, like. You got to figure out something to do with those guys too. Well, yeah, I, I presume the Rhymer would be included in that potential um, trade for Bobrovsky, and, and there have yeah. been rumblings that this might be the last season for Luongo, which would obviously um, raise some recapture penalty concerns for not, well, not not for the Panthers, obviously. But um, yeah, there's a lot of moving parts. Nah, he'll be good in Arizona. Yeah, he'll he'll, uh, he'll join that long long, long laundry list of, uh, of of greats who have. Uh, been part of that uh, heralded Arizona Coyotes organization. Yeah, it's it's. I, I think Bukestad is. I took. Um, I was surprised by the pushback by this online actually because I think, assuming the Panthers don't wind up turning around and spending all that money on Sergey Bobrovsky, I really like this from their perspective because 
I think Bukestad can get overrated a little bit. Like people still think of him as that, um, you know, top prospect and big center that he was a couple of years ago, but he's only really had the one productive season and it was last year. So it's kind of recency bias and people are still hanging on to that. But that was like the one and he was, I mean, he was the third fiddle on that top line, wasn't he? Well, exactly. It was the one year he managed to stay healthy and he was riding shotgun with Sasha Barkov and the pushback you get to that is okay. Well, Pittsburgh has guys like Crosby and Malkin and he could presumably play with them and be just as productive. And I was like, okay, that's great. But when you have Crosby and Malkin, one of the big luxuries of that is you don't have to go out and attach a $4 million plus dollar contract to a guy like Bukestad to play with them because everyone's going to be productive playing with those guys. So I presume that if you're going out and getting Bukestad or McCann, you're hoping that one of those guys is going to be your answer to the third center spot. And so far, Bukestad's playing down the middle with Malkin out, but I'm not sure he's a long-term fit there. So it, from a Penguins perspective, like I just... I think they got a bit better because Broussard was clearly having like one of the most detrimental seasons of any skater in the league this season. And I, I think Bradley Shane's kind of like a replacement level guy. So they got a bit better, but considering the price they paid by taking on future money and giving up the draft picks, I feel like they didn't get nearly, they didn't improve nearly as much as they should have based on the price they paid um, in terms of future assets. Right. So it's like, especially for the Penguins with how much money they have devoted to Crosby, Balkan, Kessel, Latang, so on and so forth. Like that $4 million that they're going to be paying Bukestad for the next couple of years on their cap is a very important piece of flexibility. They potentially could have had to get better in more creative ways in the future. And instead they kind of saddled themselves with this contract and I'm not sure how far it's going to take them. Yeah. Um, playing with 87 and 71, they tend to make people better though. So, um, yeah, I, but yeah, I you, think, I think no matter if they're, I, I don't think Bustad is probably going to reasonably ride shotgun with Crosby, maybe Malkin. Um, um but I mean, he's, he's really good at clearing space. He's a big guy and, uh, clearly Jim Rutherford's trying to craft a, a little bit of a bigger team. And, um, I think McCann's a pretty useful piece to have moving forward too, given that he has one more year left and then you still have his restricted rights. Um, and, Clearly, he's. They think he's an upgrade, at least in the bottom six. But um, yeah, I, I, my sense was that Florida couldn't really get a heck of a lot else for Bustad. But um, I'm not sure how many other teams called or called, but insisted on. You know, they wanted to retain salary or something. But um, yeah, I mean, that's that's a hefty chunk of change. I, I don't necessarily think that Florida got. Uh, I don't. I don't know if it remains to be seen. I guess if Pittsburgh got better, I don't think Florida really got worse. Um, and they did a pretty good job accumulating assets, yeah. uh, and, and cutting, cutting bait basically. I mean, look, if these are the decisions that are going to have to be made, like if you're going to jump from, you know, four points out of however many, eight points out of the playoffs to, um, energizing a market that needs a jolt, um, you're going to have to cut bait with some guys that, uh, have been around for a while. And so, um, I'm not sure what that portends for, you know, the rest of the core for guys like Ekblad and, and Huberto and Trocek or whatever, but, um, I don't know. I mean, they're fresh bloods coming in on July one. Let's put it that way. Well, yeah, I think the core isn't the problem, obviously, right? It's like if you look around at that roster, not it's a bit unfair because Vinny Trocek did miss such a uh, long period of time this year, and and he's uh, crucial for them as that second center, but. Um, like they rely so heavily on their top guys and, and the supplementary pieces around them haven't been nearly good enough and the goaltending this year has struggled as well and, and yeah, those, those are big, big reasons but, but I like I I don't know I, I think but is the, Bobrovsky the solution? Well, is, he the solu- is he the solution at 8 at whatever you're going to pay him? well that's the thing I, I think he's a horrible investment on an 8 year deal I think potentially next year or the year after or whatever like he could 
certainly make their team better. But yeah, if you're for the price you're going to be paying, I feel like there's smarter ways to go about improving that goaltending. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I'm very curious to see also what the market holds for Brassard because it seems like pretty clear that he'll be gone. He'll be moved again before the trade deadline. And people have noted rightly that he looks very washed up and I'm not sure if it's injuries based or what is what what's going on, but he's been so bad this year in Pittsburgh at the same time. What I pointed to was like, I think people in the NHL are sometimes really slow to come around to that sort of stuff. And I think Derek Broussard is still a name brand player. And I imagine that there's going to be a team, whether it's Columbus or someone else that is going to look at him and go, Ooh, I'm going to bet on the track record. I think this guy could come in and help our power play and Florida is still going to be able to get some sort of an asset for him. So that's when, when I'm talking about it from Pittsburgh's perspective, like I think they got better addition by subtraction, just removing Derek Broussard from their lineup. Cause he'd been that bad this year. But I think that, if they had shopped them, they probably could have gotten something better for him, especially as an expiring deal where you're not having to take on any future money with him. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of, I'm kind of out of, out of thoughts about yeah. the abuse that and Derek well, Broussard. It's, this is uh yeah. Some people are talking about Chris Epps and how he impacts the Dallas Mavericks. And uh, we're out here talking about uh third and fourth line centers. Uh, yeah, we times. spent like 20 minutes on, the t- on Jake Muzzin and Broussard. Yes, um, riveting times. All right, let's take a quick break here to hear from a sponsor, and we're going to talk about some other stuff on that and other things. Sponsoring today's episode of the Hockey PDOcast is SeatGeek. SeatGeek knows that getting tickets online can be far too complicated. With hundreds of websites and varying levels of reliability, it's hard to know who to trust out there. And that's why SeatGeek's the way to go, because they're going to take all the guesswork out of it for you by doing all the work for you. SeatGeek pulls millions of tickets into one place so you can easily find the seats you want for a price you're willing to pay. There's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek's going to get you close to their action for a great value. They're designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever before by searching multiple ticket sites and creating every ticket based on value. SeatGeek helps you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. They're going to take all those seats that are available um, and grade them based on value, this color-coded map, and really lay it out for you so it's super easily digestible. And even if you don't know what you're looking for, you just go on there and basically look for green, and you're good to go. And every purchase with SeatGeek is also fully guaranteed, so you can shop for, for tickets on SeatGeek with full confidence, knowing that what you're paying for is what you're going to get. All of that is why you need to make SeatGeek your go-to ticket source for everything from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and I've found that it's the easiest way to shop for tickets, whether it's uh, basketball games or hockey games or going to a concert or going to a comedy show. Um, I've used SeatGeek for all of that, and I've found that in a couple minutes, um, in a couple clicks, I've got the tickets that I want. So it saves me time, money, and effort, and there's nothing more you could ask for. And best of all, as my listener, um, along with all of those perks, you're also going to get $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase just for listening to today's episode of the Hockey PDO Cast. So all you got to do to claim that and get in on the fun is download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code PDO today. That's promo code PDO for $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Now let's get back to Alex Pruitt on the Hockey PDO Cast. All right. Um, well, let's actually talk about a superstar now. Austin Matthews. So he um, he got his extension today, and um, there were a lot of takes online from people. Um, we're it, there summarizing. I haven't been online all day. Okay, well, so here's the deal. So it, he, it was very freeing. He, uh, yeah, there's a better ways to spend your day than uh, refreshing your Twitter timeline. But I'll give you the gist of it since I unfortunately did not spend my day doing better things than that. Um, so Matthew signed a five year deal. It is. Uh, 58.15 million so it's a 11.63 cap hit per year it covers his age 22 to 26 seasons and i think people were 
alarmed by the fact that the Leafs didn't really buy UFA years from him. Um, you know, I think they were hoping that it would be an eight year deal similar to what McDavid had signed, but it's pretty clear that, um, Matthews knows his worth and was looking for the best deal for him. And I think what I come back to with this is I'm happy about this um, as an observer of the league, just because hopefully it signals a changing of the guard. Like we've seen um, sort of players taking ownership of the league in terms of showing more personality. And we're going to talk more about Evgeny Kuznetsov and you wrote about this, but also from a, from a money and financial perspective, like the, there's always been this NHL hockey culture about how stars are expected to leave money on the table and take less and take pay, home, hometown discounts so that their teams can be better around them. And that's always kind of been an infuriating thing to me because your shelf life for earning money is so short and you should get every single dollar you possibly can, especially um, you know when people take the, take the sides of teams and I get if you're a fan of a team you want to see more cap space so you can devote it to other players but it's like when, when people call a guy like Willie Nylander for holding out greedy because he's looking for more money and they're taking the side of a, a billionaire that's running the team like it's it's so funny to me how people's uh, perspectives are jaded by that and so I'm happy to see this Matthews extension and hopefully we'll see what it portends for the future but um, me too more free agents more pitch meetings more like secret flights across the country to go meet in hotel rooms like and pitch you on slideshows and stuff like it's good it's good for the game and um yeah i don't know that's my that's my rant like i understand the um i guess the gap that can develop to develop when you pay the when you have a hard salary cap like the nhl does between the haves and the have-nots or the haves and the have only six-figure salaries but um i mean in the long run it's better to have people like austin matthews front and center doing his thing because it grows the game and then it'll grow the cap and then everyone can get paid and they can negotiate, you know, whatever they want in the next CBA. But, um, yeah, I'm of the opinion that, that Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner are kind of, a, I mean, they're, they're the, it feels like the perfect duo for Toronto, um, just to have in that market and to kind of have leading the show for the next couple of years. Cause obviously they're uber talented. Um, but they seem to have the, the right attitude when it comes to, um, having fun and some of the stuff we will talk about with Kuznetsov, but um, just yeah, being this kind of leading the leading the way as as this next generation of um, of stars who aren't afraid to be themselves. Well, the fascinating thing from a um, you know bigger picture perspective for the league is how much of this, like we've seen this with many of these big contracts in the past, but I believe. Uh, like ni- over 90% or whatever, like 54 million uh, of the 58 are signing bonuses for Matthews. And yeah. uh, he's going to make like 30.4 million in a calendar year from July 1st, 2019 to July 1st, 2020 with those signing bonuses. And it's clear from a player perspective why you do that. Cause you get paid up front and it obviously makes a ton of sense to get that money. But uh, the league has been very vocal in uh, not appreciating that and not wanting teams and players to be doing that and so i imagine this is going to be a big sticking point that comes up during the next uh negotiations for the lockout i know it's uh kind of a pretty depressing somber topic to get into especially during the season but just remember stuff like this when we come back to that locker to that lockout dispute and eventually leads to probably another work stoppage i'm in for shorter terms to be negotiated but i don't know how realistic that is there players like their security and 80 year contracts are being handed out pretty yeah. rarely right now. But, um, look, good on Matthews. Good on Matthews. Um, sounds like he, he said that they discussed everything from what, like three years to all the way up to eight, but, 
Um, I mean, the fi- the window's now, right? The clock's set. Um, it's it's ticking because you know if they don't get there, then there's obviously going to be way more questions. But if they do get there, then um, I mean, this is the Kane and Taze model, right? Like, didn't they sign five years off their entry together? And um, so I, I do wonder what this means for Marner. Um, not so much dollar amount, but term length and you know, whether he, this sets the bar that, you know, they're going to sign this together and then re up and reevaluate at that time. But, um, I think this also aligns with when Nylander's contract is up too. So, um, yeah, well, here we for, go. Well, Buckle well, up, Toronto. well, so for this summer and then for the next five, they're going to have Matthews and Tavares down the middle. And that's obviously a great way to start building things out. And I know there's like a bunch of panic of, Oh, what does this mean for Mitch Marner? And now is he a more eligible candidate for an offer sheet and all this stuff? But like, these are ultimately great problems to have, right? Like this is great. Offer sheets are even better. No, but I mean, even from a Leafs perspective, like I understand this panic of like, Oh my God, now that you devoted this much money to Austin Matthews, what do you do next? And it's like, I don't know, like this, this is a, a good problem to have. Like it's, do you, would you rather save that 11.5, 11.63 million and not have Austin Matthews? Cause that's the alternative, I guess. Like it's, and it, 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 it's silly to me because people act like, um, you know, the Leafs got kind of hosed here, but it's like the player clearly has the leverage here, even though he is an RFA. And if you don't want to be the team to pay him this, some other team gladly will. And that's just the price of doing business. And that's what it ultimately boils down to. So I don't see what the issue is. Uh, pro labor you're pro Just, labor yeah me I'm, too. I'm pro, pro i'm pro labor getting their due mm-hmm. yeah yeah i am as well and obviously he's you had uh, a good tweet about billionaires and millionaires today everybody yeah we go, ch- yeah. go check out dimitri's twitter yeah that that about sums it up yes and he's worth every penny i mean his production obviously in, the, in his first three years in the league has been right up there with mcdavid in terms of five on five and uh this year's power God, play the production efficiency that he well. scores goals with is it's mind boggling. Well, that's the thing. I know um, you, I know you've written quite a bit about, um, like you wrote about line a shot and I know you've, um, you've gotten into this in some of your features in the past, but yeah, just watching him, how him and I guess Philip Forsberg are the two prototypes, but the guy, like how they shoot the puck from these, uh, elusive angles where the defenseman and the goalie can't set themselves and how they still manage to pick the corners and shoot it at high, at peak velocities, even though like they're kind of contorting their bodies. It's, it's remarkable. And yeah, just watching, um, the way he operates in the offensive zone is, is a thing of beauty. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to watching that for the next five years in a, in a Leafs uniform. Seems to be a theme with a few of my stories this year. Like I go cause that's off my kid. And I've just, I kind of have written just about fun guys to watch mm. like guys with the puck. Um, the way they either in McKinnon's case, just kind of bull through people or just deadline sprint. And then cause off and I are a little more like wide base and kind of, subtle changes in direction but um i don't know we're we're in a golden age right now i think this is yeah it's fun to watch <laughs> it is fun to watch do you want to get into uh do you want to get into kuznetsov now or would you rather do the uh the tampa bay lightning thing oh whatever we got time for both we have time for both we have time for yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever you want man well you pick you're the guest which one which one do you want to talk about first? Uh, let's go kuznetsov because we just um the one thing I didn't really get into there was uh, you mentioned leverage with uh, Matthews. Kuznetsov mm-hmm. had a heck of a lot of leverage when he re-signed his contract. Um, yeah, and I didn't really. Maybe I got into this a little bit. He he it turns out he had a he had like a six day window or like a week long window or something where KHL teams were were allowed to pitch him, and he said he just shut down his phone and like disappeared for that week because if he heard what they were going to offer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> He he might have actually thought twice, but if you recall, like it, I think it it took him until he signed after July one, I believe. Um, 
But as soon as he signed, the Caps kind of came. I think Brian McClellan came out and said, "Yeah, well, you know, we had to pay him this much, otherwise he was going to leave." And um, I'm not sure how you know reasonably close it got, but and or how much it was. You know, his agent rightly um, kind of dangling that as something that could happen. Um, but uh, but that's a real thing that um, you know for those guys back there, like you're you know you're back home, the squeeze is getting put on you, and um, you, I can't blame him if he at least would have listened. But it sounds like he didn't. Yeah, he signed on July second. July second. There mm-hmm. you go. Yeah, yeah. eight years, sixty-two point four million. Yeah, and obviously now um, with the rising cap, it's looking like a, uh, a pretty good deal for the Capitals, right? Like if you have him locked in at seven point eight million for pretty much the rest of his prime, like he's in year two of that eight-year deal and he's twenty-six. Like that's that's looking pretty good because I I don't I wouldn't expect him barring some sort of like catastrophic injury or something to fall off. Um, at least until like the final year or two of that deal. So you're having a, a prime player, one of the best, what, 20 to 25 guys in the league for under 8 million. Like that's pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, and also talk about a personality. I mean, <laughs> he, I, for those who haven't read it, I basically went to Boston to go spend time with him, um, which was his suggestion. Um, I had pitched a profile, I think a while back at the start of the year and we've been kicking around some ideas. And then uh, Sergey Kuchar of the PR guide, came to me and said, well, he suggests a basketball game, like going to a Celtics game. He's a big <laughs> basketball fan and has never been to the garden before. Um, so yeah, of course, like I, I knew, I mean, I've, I've covered Evgeny for a while and um, his, I think it was his first full year in the league was my first year on the beat. Um, and he was like getting scratched in October, November and playing on the fourth line. And um, I mean, even the playoffs, I think his line mates were Jason Chimera and Joel Ward um, or pe- at least people of that ilk and then that era of the Barry Trotz Capitals, um, and just kind of the progress he's made and kind of see him, seeing him not only come out of his shell, like interview wise as his English has gotten better. And, and he's without question, one of the funniest interviews in the league for sure. And definitely the most unpredictable, I think. Um, cause he just doesn't care. Like he just, he says what he wants and messes with people and, um, kind of the repartee he has with some of the beat writers down there is, is pretty hilarious to watch. Um, but also kind of on the ice as he's like gradually realized, um, how good he is and that he can dominate. And I know it, it does frustrate the Capitals and brass and, you know, Brian McClellan's open, open about this, that he wishes Kuznetsov were, could turn it on every night. And, you know, I think they tried him at penalty killing earlier and had some grand plans that, he was going to, you know, wreak havoc and get some breakaways. And he did at times, but they've, I think they've maybe ended that experiment a little bit. And, um, he's still not great in his defensive zone and can kind of float in and out of his attention span, kind of float in and out of games, depending on how often he touches the pie. And like, this is all stuff that he openly talks about. Um, like when we sat down for dinner and, uh, he ordered about 50,000 calories worth of appetizers. <laughs> his explanation was it's not April, right? Um, like, like he knows it's, it's a little like that, um, that kind of apocryphal Ichiro story where like, if he wanted to, he could hit home runs at any time. But, um, cause that's, I was just saying that he, you know, he knows when he has to turn it on and, you know, we, he and I hung out right before the all-star breaks. So I think after the all-star break was kind of the target point for him, but, um, yeah, just to be, to be able to see him do try, you know, things like lacrosse goals and, um, that spinorama pass he started doing for a while until everyone was start until everyone caught on to it. And it showed up in every single scouting report when you were playing the capital. So he stopped doing it. Um, you know, that ridiculous short angle goal that he lifted over Henderson's head and, um, just, you know, hearing some of the crazy things that he tries, 
I'm kind of giving up the, the whole story, but, um, you know, he's like, he's like Malkin and that he'll grab random sticks off the bench and just use them during games, just any left-handed stick just to try it. Or, um, for an entire period earlier this year, he wore Brooks Orpix skates, which were like a size and a half too big, like old <laughs> tattered, worn cowlick, worn down kind of skates, um, that he had only tried at the morning skate that, that morning. Um, by all accounts, has like no routine. He said he stopped watching film of himself a couple of years ago because his. Can I curse on this? Hmm? I can curse on this, right? Oh, absolutely. Oh, okay, cool, cool. cool. His, his exact quote was, "My mind get fucked." <laughs> um, that the more he watched film of himself, the more he got in his own head, and um, obviously he's at his best when he's free and enjoying himself, and like flamingo kicking people's sticks out of the way while he's carrying the puck or. Um, you know, obviously that celebration we talked about a lot and kind of his admiration for other leagues where they can be themselves. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I'd been, I almost thought that, you know, there was everything to write about the guy because he's so open, but, um, turns out there was, there was a heck of a lot there. Yeah. He's a breath of fresh air. I mean, this year he got off of that hot start and people thought, or were kind of wondering whether he was going to take his game to an even higher level, especially after the postseason he'd had and stepping in for Baxter when he was out. And I mean, it feels like he's been disappointing at the same time you look and he's got, yeah, he he hasn't been great. I mean, but if you look though, he's got 43 points in 46 games. So he's hovering around a point a game. He, his shooting percentage has been cut in half from what it usually is. And he's, I mean, he's still playing right now with Tom, Tom Wilson and Jakob Brano, so I wouldn't say it's like a massive downgrade, but he got, I guess, what you can call it, demoted from Ovechkin's um, spot on the top line, and, and Baxter's back there playing with him. So, like, I think ultimately, especially now that they got the monkey off their back and, and they won that cup, like, they're, I don't want to say they're slow playing it or, or playing their way into it, but it's clear that, like, um, sort of things have shifted a little bit and sort of... Um, they're playing he is playing his way into it i imagine that he's gonna once again be a monster down the stretch and and in the postseason and he is so fun to watch i mean some of the stuff when you're as talented and also as created and gifted as he is like i imagine sometimes you have to do stuff just to keep yourself engaged or interested because it does come so easy to you and obviously when you try stuff like that especially in 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 the best league in the world against the best players in the world sometimes it's not going to work out and you might wind up looking a little silly but just the fact that he tries some of the stuff he does is um I'm always going to be a fan of that, and I wish more guys did that. But uh, just guess... the, w- the way he thinks, like he said, his dream is to take a referee out to dinner. Like when he retires, like he said, that's the first thing he's going to do when he retires is is take a referee out to dinner, like an active referee. Just because apparently he wants to learn, like why they call what they call, and just get inside a referee's head. I don't know. It's it's interesting. You never you never really know where our conversation with him's going to go. Yeah, he's amazing. I um. Yeah, I guess I'm curious to see sort of how, because obviously Ovechkin's still the guy in Washington, and it feels like he forever will be, and, and Backstrom is still really dang good. Um, but I do wonder, I guess, what, because that's like 26 years old right now. I wonder if there is going to be a, a time where he kind of takes that takes over that because i know in your, in your piece you wrote about how um especially against the penguins when he scored that uh series clinching goal in overtime it felt like a bit of like a kind of a passing of the torch moment but um we're obviously still not there yeah, yet. yeah it was a very the, met, the symbolism was pretty blatant on that one yes yeah and the celebration um, after I, I love how his celebration um just like pissed off a certain segment of people and and it's it's awesome. I, I I do think there there are some good there are good checks on him in in Washington. Like Orpix Orpix is a good influence for him. Um, 
Tom Wilson and I were had a little bit of a conversation about how like Tom Tom's pretty aware when Kuznetsov's not going that night or when he's not engaged and Tom needs to ratchet it up a little bit and um kind of go get the puck for him, I guess, while Kuznetsov floats and, and p- tries to pick his spots. And um I remember Brett Colony, he and I talked when they were in Boston playing and he kind of made the point, like, do you think what Kuznetsov you know, the way he acts and, uh, which is obviously all great and stuff, but, you know, do you think it would fly in like every dressing room? And obviously he played in Boston. He knows what's, he knows the captaincy of Z. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a good room, I think, um, for Kuznetsov and in that, you know, the pressure is off him a lot of the time, um, because they have Ovechkin and because they have, um, some of these players who are more in front of him, he can just, you know, he can be himself. He can pick and choose his spots. I mean, when you're as good as he is, you're going to get away with a lot of antics. Like you mentioned, that Bruins room. Like, uh, uh, by all accounts, David Pasternak's a bit of a character, and obviously, uh, you know, Brad Marchand has his share of antics. And if you're delivering on the ice, I think people are going to look over a lot of those uh, personality quirks or, or, or kind of weird comments. Yeah, we should encourage it regardless. That's that's the best. I, I think that's what Kuznetsov's all about is, yeah. So tell me about this uh, hanging out with him. You went to the basketball game. You guys crushed the steak together. Uh, yeah, we went, to, we had a dinner beforehand, okay. um, had to eat, I guess. Uh, that guy has no, he has no diet. He's, he's very Ovechkin like in that way. Um, they eat pretty much the same pregame meal. Um, I know Ovechkin got a lot of attention for his chicken parm and, um, spaghetti or whatever, but cause that's not pretty much eats the same thing like before games. Um, it's, I don't think he has as much Coca-Cola during games, um, as Ovechkin does, but he has some. Um, and the, the, the probably the best quote he has, well, I'm not on that green juice diet shit or something, yeah. something like that. Uh, when he, as he's looking over our menu and ordering, you know, these ridiculous appetizers and steaks. And, um, then we go to the basketball game and, and he's, he's a huge NBA fan. He didn't know anything about basketball when he came to the States. Um, but I mean, he was like rattling off guys' salary cap numbers of, you know, not starters on I think it was Celtics Pacers who were playing and like, I mean, he was he was pretty up to date on everything, um, and he's like that about a lot of stuff. That if he gets if he gets into a subject, um, he watches a lot of like documentaries about other guys, you know, soccer players' lives and stuff. Um, once he gets into a subject, he gets he gets pretty into it. So um, that was another interesting part was that he's he's a very curious mind. You know, um, wants to sit in on the Caps war room on trade deadline day or on July one and just kind of see how that operates and has a lot of questions of their Scott Murray, their goalie coach. It was the same thing with Mitch Korn, their, their former goalie coach. Um, you know, I was just kind of asking like, how do we beat this goalie or, you know, what are his weak spots, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, those are things that like guys like Ovechkin and Oshie do too. Um, but, uh, when you package it with kind of the free spirit there, it, um, it all adds up to a pretty unique guy. Well, and I imagine this, uh, this year compared to some others might be a, a busier one in that Capitals war room, right? Like we've heard, um, that they might be getting getting a little frisky and making some moves to, to shake things up just because they have been losing so much lately and they're falling. They're not falling out of it, I guess. I mean, the Blue Jackets are four, three points behind them. and But I guess like the fact that the Islanders have been as good as they have been and for every single week the passes and they're still sitting atop the Metro Division, I imagine that makes some of these other teams sweat it a little bit because I imagine heading into the year they, uh, they weren't expecting the Metro Division to be looking the way it is right now. Yeah, but I mean, what what piece do you move out? I guess you t- try to tinker with your bottom six, maybe just add some depth. I mean, Burkowski's the obvious. Burkowski's the obvious one. Yeah, um, they've been trying to get rid of him for a while, and it's just pretty clear it's not working out there. But the problem with him is, um, whatever team gets him would have to qualify him at uh, at over three million, which he's certainly not worth at this point. And um, I don't know, maybe you acquire him in bank that you can sign him and. 
um, you know, you reject the qualifying offer and then you sign him to a short-term deal because of his value being low. But I, I'm also not sure what you get in return. If it's picks, uh, I think they would like to get a roster spot out of that. But um, I don't know. Maybe it's another – maybe it's kind of one of those, like, one-for-one specials where both guys uh, need a change of scenery. Yeah, boy, that's one I was uh, I was certainly dead wrong on. I thought he was going to – especially, what was it, like that postseason run maybe two years ago or three years ago? I really thought he was going to take off and become a star in this league. And I mean, he's still 23 years old only, so he's still got time. But it looks like it's certainly not going to happen in Washington. I guess just just take all of my Burkowski takes and pretend I was talking about Jakob Vrana instead. I, I remember when I first came onto that beat, it was – the big question was, is Kuznetsov or Burakovsky going to be their center? <laughs> like, I think it was their 3C at the time that they were battling for. I forget who second was behind Backstrom. But, um, yeah, it's kind of it's it's kind of interesting to see the, the gap that's developed. Um, but Burakovsky's only 23. He's three years younger than Kuznetsov. And Kuznetsov had obviously played in the K for a while. So um, if I was a team looking for maybe some middle six upside, um, I mean, Burakovsky's proven that he can hang on a cup-contending team at least on the third line, at least on an energetic, um, up-tempo third line. So um, if he fits with your system, like I would, I would at least put in a call. Yeah, he seems like a good buy-low candidate just based on the talent alone. Um, okay, let's let's wrap this thing up by talking about the Lightning. So you uh, you got to spend three days with them? Yeah, so it's a little sausage-making conversation. Um, I I also pitched this to a couple teams. Um, I initially wanted was curious about the Kings last year when they hired Pierre Turgeon as um, offensive coordinator. What they, what, yeah, what they called an offensive coordinator. Yeah. Um, this all kind of started with like the the grand premise, which I kind of lay out at the top of the story that um, like hockey coaches on the one hand, you have to be really extreme micromanagers. Like you got to call out line changes, which is a thing that no real no other coach really has to do at that kind of speed. Um, you kind of got to think the matchups and, and it, it requires, I think, accessing a certain part of your brain that's, um, different than most sports. And, but at the same time, you have to really surrender yourself to the fact that you're coaching the most random game on earth. Um, and like coaches themselves are inherently wired as, you know, extreme micromanagers. So how do you kind of walk that tightrope? Um, so that was kind of the overarching question I wanted to answer. And that was just kind of an excuse for me to spend three days with Tampa, um, so yeah, I, I got there. Uh, this was right before the All Star break, so um, it aligned with two games that they had against uh, San Jose. I, for, Toronto was first, and then San Jose, um, which you know, two top five teams at the time, um, gave me a pretty good window, I think, in how to prepare. And um, so I was there for two game days and then one practice day, uh, pretty much all access with the coaching staff, um, just kind of hanging out in their room. You know, I'd go linger in the locker room if they were talking to the team and. Um, but mostly just kind of behind the scenes watching them work. Um, they just watch a lot of film. <laughs> like that's kind of what I learned that the average, it's not the first coaching staff I've embedded with, um, but I don't want to oversell it either. I've done it with Washington and, and Tampa or sorry, not Washington and Vegas before this. Um, and what struck me about Tampa was that just kind of how loose they were as a group. Um, it's a relatively half of it's a relatively new staff. They hired, two new guys, Jeff Halpern, the former player, and um, Derek Lalonde, who was um, the coach of the Iowa Wild last year. And he's, he's kind of climbed the same rungs as John Cooper, started out in Green Bay and you know worked his way up to the, to the NHL. So, um, But then the rest of the staff were have been there, um, have been there through the you know three conference finals in the past four years. And um, 
it's just, it was, so it's understandable why they're so loose because they are familiar with each other. Um, but it was just a very kind of casual, you know, go to the rink, get your work done, very serious while you're there, but also rip on each other mercilessly, um, and then go out for a beer after. So, um, very, very interesting window, I think, just to kind of see how it all, how it all worked, just to, just to kind of get a sense of the game plan, just from, you know, sun up, uh, 6:30 a.m. Jeff, Hal- Jeff Halpern's there on a game day, you know, watching shifts from the last night and or two nights ago, and you know, putting in that work all the way to John Cooper having his post game cup of Cabernet, um, <laughs> you know, waxing about the nature of the job at 12:30 a.m. So, um, yeah, a real front to back look, which I, I personally hadn't experienced before. Um, it was it was kind of hard to process, just or at least synthesize for the story how much went on and kind of all the action there, but, um, give it a read. It's on, should be on si.com. Uh, I guess when this podcast yeah, comes up, I think it will be, well, it's interesting because from like, from the one perspective, you could look at it and go, well, obviously things are loose and they're having fun when you have a team with Kucherov and Stamkos and Hedman and Vasilevsky and so on and so forth. And you're kind of running away with the president's trophy here. But at the same time, um, you know, on the one hand, it was amazing. You mentioned it in the piece, and I, I hadn't really even thought about it. But now that I guess Quenville's gone, John Cooper is the longest tenured coach in the league at six years or whatever. And uh, it speaks to how volatile a position it is. But also, it, it seems kind of crazy that he has been there for that long at this point. And also that um, they've kind of, now that the Capitals have won, they really have sort of taken over the mantle of the team that has these postseason demons and hasn't gotten over the over the hump yet right like they made the cup final that one year and lost to the blackhawk but it still seems like there's a lot of uh sort of unfinished business or untapped potential with this current core and with some of the financial decisions they're gonna have to make and probably breaking up the team and potentially losing a guy like tyler johnson or some other contributor um it's i think it seems fair to say that this is probably the best incarnation that we're gonna see of this team and so there's so much pressure and so much on the line this year. And with all that postseason baggage, it would be very easy for it to become a bit more of a hostile or untenable situation where everyone is kind of thinking about that. And it leads to a mess in the regular season because you're constantly thinking about the postseason. So the fact that they have been as good as they've been so far this regular season um, isn't necessarily a given just based on the talent that they have, I guess. Yeah, I will say I caught him at what by all counts, it had been a pretty relaxing time. It was right before, right before their bye week, which fed into the all-star break. So they were going to be off for like 10 days. Um, whopping lead on the right, you know, 20 points up or whatever on the rest of the Eastern conference and, you know, nine points up on the entire league and, um, you know, on pace for the fourth best record of all time. I think tying one of the sixties era Canadians. Um, so, you know, kind of puts into perspective, what they've managed to accomplish so far through, um, you know, early February now, but you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, points up, right. He's going to get paid and, mm-hmm. um, a couple fringe pieces. And so, you know, they're gonna have to rejigger their defense. I matter their blue line with, um, you know, guys like Strawman and, um, Girardi and Coburn up. So, um, yeah, I mean the, the windows now, um, they certainly appear to be ready to go. Um, I mean, they're, they're a relentless group and, um, the, the kind of thesis that Cooper had of John Cooper had of, of coaching, um, which I found kind of interesting and maybe this speaks to kind of the randomness of the game that he said, the the ultimate goal is to get the team to coach itself. That like, once you know that when you, the, the way that you know that you've kind of succeeded is, um, if the room kind of just does its thing and, you know, you give them guidance, you pop in and there, but you're, you're almost like a CEO. That's kind of how, that's what struck me about the way, John Cooper kind of operates is he, you know, he floats around the coach's room and asks questions and make sure that everything's running smoothly. And, 
um, you know, does spot checks on video and make sure that it's, you know, a tight five and the players aren't going to get bored and the relevant clips are in there and, um, you know, goes and gives a pump up speech in the room, but it's only like 30 seconds long. And, you know, it's a lot of it ju- is just like kind of, especially when you've been around, like you've been around, like you said, for six years, I mean, the turnover rate, I think it's like 11 out of 31 of the jobs have turned over since last April. Um, so to have that kind of security and, um, not only that to have coached a lot of these guys in the minors and to have, you know, grown up with the same core and the, you know, your captain, you guys grew up together pretty much in Stamkos. And, um, I think it breeds a certain comfort level and a certain knowledge in the system. And, um, you know, like one thing I didn't, I don't think I mentioned this in a story, but, um, they just, you know, they went back to their, um, I think it was the neutral zone system that they ran during 2015 when they made it to the cup final. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been running, you know, I forget which, which alignment it was, but they've been running a certain system for the past couple of years. And then this year they decided, all right, we're going to go back to that one. Um, and it was, you know, it was a very short, very flawless, um, installment in training camp and that's it. Um, because the guys know it and, you know, oh, yeah, remember that just need a couple reminders and, and on you go. Um, and it, it, you know, the, the later you get in the season, just to have that kind of, um, I guess flawless operation is, is something that I, I didn't really realize just what, what all goes into that and how easy it is just kind of make changes in the process of, um, you know, for instance, they, against Toronto, they unveiled, and I wrote about this, they unveiled a new for a new neutral zone setup. Um, you know, they had on their penalty kill, um, they'd been in a two, two box pretty much the entire year. And then they decided one time to start practicing, um, a three, one and, and try to basically halt, uh, Toronto's controlled zone entries and, um, stand them up a little bit at the blue line at the, at their defensive blue line. And, um, it was something they only practiced and, um, you know, you kind of had the luxury of trying stuff like that when you're that far up in the standings, but also when you have um, a coaching staff that's been kind of saying things in the same way and has been, you know, preaching the same things for, um, what is it, six years now. Um, if you want to try stuff, yeah, it's, it's, it's not that hard. <laughs> yeah, it's staggering how good they've been this year, right? Like the, I mean, plus what, they have plus 59 goal differential in 52 games. They, uh, in the same number of games played, they've scored 85 more goals than the Los Angeles Kings have. Like just like some of these stats are just, uh, so staggering and you're right. Like I'm very fascinated to see, um, during award season, assuming things hold firm now, like I guess if the Islanders do make the playoffs or especially if it's through one of the one, one of the three uh, Metro spots and not even a wild card spot, if they hang on to that. I imagine Barry Trotz is going to get a lot of love for the Calder just based on that kind of year, year one year to the next turnaround. But with a guy like Cooper, when, when you have so much talent, um, similar to when the caps, I guess, like we're at their peak and, and, and trots was there. It's like, it's always tough to know how much love to give the coach and how much of it is just, well, you're blessed with this immense roster and it's, it'd be pretty much impossible to mess it up. So as long as you kind of just get out of the way and push all the right buttons, you're going to be good to go. But it's clear that like they are, um, you know, both in terms of roster building through their front office, whether it was from Iserman or now Julian Brisois or through the coaching staff, like they've long been considered one of the more um, progressive or analytically friendly organizations in terms of a lot of the moves they make, both in terms of personnel, but also in terms of, um, you know, lineup decisions and and strategy and so on and so forth. So it's kind of cool to see them um, optimizing this entire operation and squeezing the most out of it, even though it'd be pretty hard to mess up just based on the players they have. Yeah, I will say, I I feel like I gained a new appreciation for what you kind of glossed over the process of pushing the right buttons. Like, 
yeah, yeah, it's a it's a it's an incredible roster that's cap controlled and um, set up to succeed for the next however many years and have been for a while now. And um, but at the same time, I, you know, Cooper described his job as as predominantly personality management. You know, making sure that basically all the pieces in the machine are doing the right thing because in such a fluid game like hockey, you know, if one cog breaks, you know, if one cog gets loose or one screw gets loose, then kind of the whole flow can can break down, and then there's this domino effect and on and on it goes and you know how difficult is it to just kind of trace the problem back in the first place but um yeah it's it it seems to be a lot of you know for instance when i was there he, he talked with stamkos three times like on each day he had like a private meeting with stamkos and that seems to be routine just you know kind of check up um get the pulse of the locker room and then kind of use a guy like stamkos as a conduit to you know get his message across and I know it's like you know it's all, it's all this like really intangible stuff, and it's this is probably more pronounced in hockey, I think, than other sports where you know it's it's easy to um, you know judge a baseball manager on his decisions because the entire game is a series of you know of action of single actions, and you know, you make a shift or you you pinch hit a guy or whatever, and there's percentages and all that. But um, hockey's you know so much more fluid, and and it seems like the at least a slice of the pie that is devoted to kind of you know just massaging egos and and managing personalities and um you know making sure that guys' sticks are point or their skates are pointed the right way when they're you know the weak side winger uh, trying to protect the wall against a low to high you know forward to d pass like it's just all these little details that you kind of got to make sure that that guys are doing the right thing on but um, but you're absolutely right. Like it's it sure beats the heck out of um, you know managing a roster that doesn't have Nikita Kucherov and <laughs> Victor Hedman and Ryan McDonough and uh, and Steven Samkos. And I get a new appreciation for Chernak. I hadn't seen Chernak a lot. I don't know if you've watched Tampa a lot lately, but man, that guy's good. He's 21, and um, I think they see him as kind of the anchor of on the right side there for a while. Well, and it's also amazing to think about how they got him right. Like that one year where. They just weirdly had a bunch of injuries and bottomed out and missed. Well, didn't bottom out, but they missed the playoffs despite the fact that people had high expectations for him. They just like sold Ben Bishop at the deadline, even though they clearly had no long term plans for him for Chernak. And then like L.A. for some reason traded for him and yeah, didn't geez. do anything with it. And then he leaves as a free agent. And it's like this is a great example of two organizations that are going in completely different directions in terms of how they're approaching building their teams. And you're right. I mean, like. I think from a tangible perspective, you had this in, in your story about um, you know their focus on on peppering pucks to the slot and working the middle of the ice, and uh, that is a bit more of a tangible thing because there are rosters out there that have great players, uh, maybe not as many in bulk as as the Lightning have, but have individual talent that their system isn't optimizing it. Whereas with this Lightning team, like we're just watching their power play and sort of how well oiled a machine it is, where you're just constantly going east west with Kucherov and Stamkos back and forth, and you have slot there. And, uh, point there in the middle in the slot like it's they're also strategically actually putting their guys in a position to succeed too as opposed to just having this power play where victor hedman is taking all the shots from the point yeah i I don't think this may be of interest to your listeners i don't know how much i got into it in the story but um i was kind of struck by how seamless analytics were kind of integrating the operation um to the point where it didn't really feel like you know this is like the analytics time you know it wasn't like one to two p.m is like the analytics hour (laughs) um they're I forget, I forget his name. The director of analytics. He's been there for a while, though. He, I mean, he comes down between every period from the booth with Franz Jean, the the goalie coach, and you know, he just kind of waits there. If anybody has questions, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. You know, he's he's on hand there. Um, Cooper and the staff they they chart. I think the three stats that they prioritize are are fifty fifty battles, 
turnovers um, and scoring chances. And they get kind of a master sheet every day of um, you know where players are and ranked. And um, I think it's broken down into rates. So, you know, battles per 20 minutes or scoring chances four per 20. And um, then they kind of have this whole like master score that kind of see just like those are, I guess, I guess indicators of, of involvement almost, um, almost proxies for it. Um, you know, they track zone time, percentage zone time. There's color coded charts on their desks, you know, talk and you know, just it's information that's there. I'm not sure how much, you know, it wasn't necessarily cited in any way, really. Um, I think I heard Jeff Halpern talking about offensive zone time once on the first day, day, but there wasn't a heck of a lot of, you know, numbers flying through the air and equations being written on chalkboards, but you know, it was, it was present and it was, you know, it's, it's what analytics is there for, which is just additional information to, yes. Um, to either supplement or confirm or encourage further analysis or encourage further attention or to alert you to something that you may not have thought of. Um, it was, it was refreshing to see that, you know, the best team in the league by a long shot is kind of using it. I think in the, I think in the right way. Yeah. I think everyone, everyone is at this point, it's just a matter of, uh, whether you're using it correctly. Right. But I, uh, you're, you're thinking of Michael Peterson, uh, is there Michael Peterson? Guy? Thank yeah. you. Forgive well, me, Michael. And, and, and th- there is this, uh, he probably is actually, there is this, uh, misconception, um, amongst fans of like what the integration of analytics really means. And I think, I think that's the best way to illustrate it is what you said there, where it's like, you're not necessarily devoting a certain chunk of your day or a certain part of the discussion and you're getting all nerdy all of a sudden throwing out a bunch of numbers. Like you're like, you're just, the key is to seamlessly integrate it. And that goes from the staff you have that actually uh, is, is responsible for kind of getting all the all the data and then relaying it in a palatable sense to whether it's the general manager or the coach or whoever uh, that's going to be using that to make their decisions in like a seamless manner where a lot of this stuff is kind of common sense or logical and you want to break down that barrier by just sort of um, using those quantifiable measures to either validate a point or dispute it or make you ask different questions. And it's clear that the lightning are doing a great job of that. And I thought a great example of that in your story was uh, what they're using in terms of goaltending with the goalie coach and sort of the prep in terms of tendencies and um, different measures beyond just looking at a goalie's goals against average and win percentage and figuring out whether he's good or bad based on that, but actually diving into certain um, other deeper things that would kind of quantify where you can expose certain guys and where you should be shooting and how you should be moving the puck. And so I love stuff like that. Yeah. France is really interesting. France Jean is their goalie coach and he's been there for a while. He's came from the, the queue, uh, Montreal native, you know, went used to go to the forum, watch games as a kid. Um, really interesting his use of analytics because he's, he's been doing this for you know decades now i think he's been a goalie coach for you know 20 years or so and he said he's kind of been honing this system or at least adding to it over that time where you know it starts out with something simple as like rebound control and then you you know you add another stat there and then you're accumulating this database of stats and numbers and um you know until he got to tampa a lot of it was just kind of manually tracking it and you know you track your own goalies but you don't really have a, a league-wide um, frame of reference, but um, yeah, to have Michael and uh, the, their department there, they really work hand in hand. And then, um, this, yeah, uh, the example I you know showed in the story was when Andre Vasilevsky gets there. Um, I think they they showed he had a, he was struggling in particular to, to see screenshots, to fight around screens, and to track them. And um, this was borne out using their own tracking methods and Francis system, which. 
boy, to sit up there in, in the press box, I spent the third period of one game. I think it was a Toronto game with him. And, um, you know, he uses an iPad. He writes on writes on the tablet. But it's just this indecipherable series of hieroglyphics of, like, <laughs> colors and numbers and shapes and lines through them. And, like, I asked him to explain it to me, and I had no idea what was going on. Um, but this all kind of condenses into what, you know, he understands is his own system and his own um, his own numbers of what matters to him as a goalie coach, um, and then uses that to to inform you know training with with Vasilevsky and you know Deming, for instance, when he came, um, I think France actually knew him from the queue. Um, Deming came; his deficiency was rebound control, um, and you know they knew this because you know the analytics staff has data on goalies now, and that's that's the that's the really cool part about the age we're in. I think is. Um, all these numbers are available and it can influence decisions and it, it leads to at least to cooler stories. Like I, I think it's, it's more interesting to um, when you have, you know, evidence that that data improved a guy like Andre Vasilevsky, who in ball counts one of the best goalies in the league right now. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And I guess we'll see ultimately. Uh, I mean, I guess they have been rewarded for it based on uh, this stretch of, of dominance they've had both this season and in the past, even though it hasn't resulted in a Stanley cup, but yeah, it'll be curious to see, uh, once they start getting forced into some of those more um, tricky decisions in terms of who they keep and who they have to ship out of town, like the Chicago Blackhawks did, whether um, their embrace and appreciation and usage of, of some of this stuff will help them mitigate some of that loss, right? And, and, and make better decisions about who they do ultimately wind up keeping. One kind of behind-the-scenes story... I forget what, maybe this was the practice day or something, but Julian Breezewalk comes in and he's got a stack of books and he starts passing them. No one of the coaches were there. This was like after they'd gone, he was going to go meet with Cooper, which they did pretty regularly. It turned out too. Um, and I was just kind of rifling through the book and it was all about like, I think the art of practice, it was like the art of practicing or just kind of mental preparation, how to get better at getting better basically. Um, and, you know, using science and um, kind of examples of, um, I think Mozart was one example and Ray Allen shooting three pointers was one example in the book. And I, I wish I had dug up the name, but, um, he starts passing it around and, you know, everyone gets a book and, and just kind of the top down philosophy there. Um, I'm sure it's not the only organization that, you know, where the GM has given out, you know, books of, um, you know, encourage forward thinking, but, um, a kind of introspection, but, um, you know, that kind of struck me as, as something that was a little bit noteworthy that he just had that kind of relationship. That was that kind of culture there where, um, and he did it saying like Oprah, he was like, you get a book, you get a book. <laughs> I had never met Julian Breezeball before. That was kind of my first introduction to him. Yeah. What'd you think? I think by the third day he was like, why the hell is this kid still here? Yeah. Yeah. He's uh he seems like a pretty intimidating guy, which I guess is a, a key for the, uh, if you're going to be a lightning general, a lightning general manager, you have to have that type of presence. <laughs> um, all right. Well, Alex, let's, uh, Let's wrap it up here. We'll put a ball on it. And there's a bunch of other stuff I wanted to get into with you, but uh, we'll just save it for next time. I guess. More so stories. What uh, Do you have any uh, any stories you're... I mean, whether they're nope. just kind of... Well, do you have any ideas of stuff you would like to do? Yeah. Yeah. But you don't want to share under wraps yeah. for now. Um, okay. I'm working on a few non-hockey projects right now. Um, got some other people swooping in to do a couple things. So mm. I'm... Uh, just kicking it. Cool, man. Well, this was a blast. I'm glad we got to finally do this. And uh, the next time you do write a, a interesting long form feature, we're going to get you back on the show. Sounds good. All right. Have a good one, man. You too. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dimitri.
Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey